From the uh, things aren't always as they may appear at first glance, a file come the following stories. A group of senior citizens, it reminded me as uh, George was making an announcement, a group of senior citizens were sitting around talking about their ailments. The first said, my arms are so weak I can hardly hold this cup of coffee. The second said, oh, well, my cataracts are so bad I can't even see my coffee. Third said, I can't turn my head because of the arthritis of my neck to which several nodded weakly in agreement. My blood pressure pills make me dizzy, another went on. I guess that's the price we pay for getting old Winston old man as he shook his head. Then there was a short moment of silence. One woman cheerfully said, well, it's not all that bad. We should be grateful that at least we can all still drive. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there, haven't we? Or consider this Agatha Christie whodunit. Four strangers traveled together in the same compartment of a European train. Two men and two women faced each other. One woman was a very wealthy and sophisticated 70 years old and uh, was decked out in the finest of furs and jewelries. Next to her sat a beautiful young woman, 19 years old, who looked something right out of the cover of a fashion magazine. This is across from the older lady. was a very mature-looking man in his mid-50s who was highly decorated as a colonel in the Air Force. Next to the colonel sat a young private fresh out of boot camp. As the four strangers traveled, they talked, they chatted about trivial things until they entered an unlighted tunnel. And there they sat in complete darkness and total silence until the sound of a distinct kiss broke the silence. Following the kiss, a loud slap could be heard throughout the cabin. In the ensuing period of silence, the four strangers sat quietly with their own thoughts. The older lady was thinking, isn't it wonderful that even in this permissive day and age, even in this permissive day and age, there still are young women who have a little self-respect and dignity. The young woman, shaking her head and, and, and greatly puzzled, asked herself, why in the world would any man in his right mind want to kiss an old fossil like that when I'm sitting right here next to her? The colonel, rubbing his sore face, was outraged that any woman could ever think that a man in his position would try to sneak a kiss in the dark. And the private, grinning from ear to ear, was thinking, what a crazy and mixed up world we live in when a private can kiss the back of his hand and then smack a colonel in the face and get away with it. <laughs> oh, isn't that great? The point is simple, and that's this. If not careful, a rush to judgment can oftentimes miss the truth, and things aren't always as they may appear at first glance. You know, and that certainly is the case if you've got your Bibles. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8, where we find God moving the early church beyond their comfort zone. And as we'll learn through this passage, that is God's desire for all of His people. In Acts chapter 8, we'll start with verse 1, where we find these words. Acts chapter 8, we will learn that God wants us all as His people, to be reaching beyond our comfort zone. And He has a plan in which He'll accomplish this truth. Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 1, we read these words. It says, And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. If you recall, last time we were together, we were talking about the death of Stephen. And the Bible tells us that Saul was in hearty agreement in putting Stephen to death. And on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. 
says, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city. On Sunday, January 8, 1956, was on the shores of a lonely river deep in the Ecuadorian jungle, five missionaries were murdered by primitive Aka Indians. News of the massacre shocked the world, and to some, their deaths seemed a senseless tragedy. Many decreed the promising missionary careers cut short, the young wives bereft of their husband, the children left fatherless. But since things aren't always as they may appear at first glance, those with deeper spiritual insight saw things differently. In fact, it was one of the men who were murdered. His name was Nate Saint. What a great name. And he lived up to it. The Bible says that, the, I mean, in this particular instance, that we're told that he, had, he wrote this in his journal. As we weigh the future and seek the will of God. He says, does it seem right that we should hazard our lives for just a few savages? As we ask ourselves this question, we realize that it's not the call of the needy thousands. Rather, it is the simple intimation of the prophetic word that there shall be some from every tribe in God's presence in the last day. And in our hearts, we feel that it is pleasing to Him that we should interest ourselves in making an opening into the Aka prison for Christ. Elizabeth Elliot wrote that in her book, Through Gates of Splendor, which I would highly recommend any of us to read. In other words, what he was saying was that since every person of every tribe and every language and every color will be representative in the kingdom of God one day, should we not in obedience fulfill the calling that we have to reach all people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And while we may not have the same burden to reach the people that they had to reach, the Bible says should we not have the same burden to reach all people in other words, the kingdom of God will be a kingdom of unity, but without uniformity. So oftentimes in the world we live in, we confuse unity for uniformity. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're told that God has uniquely gifted His people and His kingdom with a diversity of gifts for the purpose of bringing glory to God and equipping the saints for the work of ministry. That every one of us have a place in God's kingdom in reaching others for Christ. We're to be united in purpose. And as I thought about, you know, even as you guys were uh, leading us in worship and the songs that you chose, how oftentimes we hear rumblings that, you know, I don't like that style of music or it's too loud or it's not loud enough or it's not upbeat or it should be more upbeat. And, you know, and on and on that we go. And one thing that I would hope that all of us can learn to agree, and that is this, that the message of the song or the heart of the song or the person that we worship is a risen Savior, Jesus Christ who has purchased us, who have believed and trusted in Him with a very precious, His own very precious blood. And while we praise Him, it means sometimes we overlook the differences that so easily divide us. But let us not lose sight of Him and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before Him endured the pain and despised the shame. It says, Consider Him who endured such hostility against His enemies so that you and I do not grow weary and that we don't lose heart.
And so I would hope that each of us who have come to faith in Christ would focus on Him and not allow those differences to divide us because we are to be united, but we're not to be uniform. We're not all the same. We're all given different gifts. We're all brought along at a different pace. But we all are committed, I would hope, for those who have come to faith in Christ to become more like Jesus in our lifetime. Elizabeth Elliot went on, who was the widow of one of the other martyrs, Jim Elliot, and made this comment. She said, to the world at large, this was a sad waste of five young lives. Isn't the way we see things? What a waste. But she says, but God has a plan. And it's His plan and purpose in all things. It says, these were those whose lives were changed by what happened on Palm Beach that day. In Brazil, a group of Indians in a mission station deep in the Mato Grosso, upon hearing the news, dropped to their knees and cried out to God for forgiveness for their own lack of concern for fellow Indians who did not know of Jesus Christ. From Rome, an American official wrote to one of the widows, and he wrote this, I knew your husband, and he was to me the ideal of what a Christian should be. An Air Force major stationed in England with many hours of jet flying immediately began making plans to join the Mission Aviation Fellowship. A missionary in Africa wrote, Our work will never be the same. We knew two of the men and their lives have left deep deep marks on ours. She said, Off the coast of Italy, an American naval officer was involved in an accident at sea. As he floated alone on a raft, he recalled Jim Elliott's words, which he had read about in a news report. And they were these, When it comes time to die... Make sure that all you have to do is die. He prayed that he might be saved, knowing that he had more to do than die. He wasn't ready to go. God answered his prayer and he was rescued. In Des Moines, Iowa, an 18-year-old boy prayed for a week in his room, then announced to his parents, I am turning my life over completely to the Lord. I want to try to take the place of one of those five men. You see, at first glance, many may think Stephen's death may seem rather pointless. Just one more example of a promising career, a young life cut short. Stephen, as we learned, was a man full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith and wisdom and grace and power. He was a servant of God and others, and he was a bold witness for Christ with a commanding and deep knowledge of the Old Testament. He had a reputation that led the church to choose him as one of seven to oversee its daily affairs. He truly had a wonderful, promising career from a human perspective. Why was it necessary then that one so gifted have such a brief ministry, such a short life? Further, his ministry seemed to have ended in failure. Not only was he killed as a heretic, but his death also triggered, as we see, the first persecution against the church. That persecution spearheaded by Saul of Tarsus scattered the Jerusalem fellowship all over the place. In order to understand these things, we must go to the Bible for a clearer view of God and and His plan and His will. If you're troubled at this moment in time because of something that's going on in your life, I beg you and I challenge you to go to the Word of God for clarity. Because in it, God reveals what He's doing in your life in the midst of such a troubling experience. See, Stephen's death and life reinforces the biblical truth that there are no promising careers or lives ever cut short. That is not a possibility. Each of us will live not a minute longer or shorter than our appointed time to die. The Bible says it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. 
Psalm 139, a very comforting psalm, tells us that even before we lived yet a day, that every day that has been ordained to us has been written in the very book of God. To me, that's very comforting because it tells me that we have a God who is in absolute control of all things. Even in those dark moments of crisis in our life where we think that God has somehow abandoned us, we know that He has a purpose and a plan through all of it. Stephen's life is a beautiful example also of a man who redeemed his time wisely. The Bible says that we have only so much time to live and that we're to redeem or make the most of the time that God has given us this side of eternity. Stephen was a man who redeemed his time wisely as he was obedient in the daily disciplines of life. What was God doing through Stephen's life and his death? You know, the persecution which seemed to be so negative was really a positive factor. Because what it did was it led to the, you know, this first great missionary outreach by the early church. Satan tried to stomp out the Word of God. He doesn't want the Gospel of Jesus Christ to go forth into the world. And he tries to do what he can to stop it. And yet, this fire that was in Jerusalem that burned so brightly as, he try, as they tried to stop it, the embers spread all over the place. In Judea and Jerusalem, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the outermost parts of the world as we will see. In other words, God was causing His people to reach beyond their comfort zone in order to accomplish His preordained purposes. See, the church's first missionary effort that began and was foreshadowed in chapter 5, if you recall, when people from the cities near Jerusalem brought their sick to the apostles to heal. Stephen's outreach to the Hellenistic Jews, some from foreign lands, was a step toward reaching the world for Christ. They were carrying out his mandate to be witnesses where they were and to be witnesses where he would send them. This chapter marks another turning point in Jerusalem. Jerusalem up to this point is dominating the world scene and the biblical picture that we have, but now it will take a backdrop or go into the background as to what God is about to do as he reaches out to bring his message to others throughout the world. And it also is is um, is a great example to us of this truth, and that is this. An opportunity ignored is opportunity lost. And what I mean by that is this. You will find that we have a God who loves people and is committed to reach people. He's given His best, His own Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn it for the world has been condemned already but to save it. God loves people and He reaches out to people and He tells the truth about our condition, that we're sinners separated from God, that we have a need for forgiveness and without being forgiven, we will be condemned for all of eternity, separated from God. And He loves us and He sent a Savior, a remedy for this problem that we have of sin for whoever would believe in Him, the Bible says, would not perish but have eternal life. That forgiveness is found only in Christ and His death on the cross and subsequent resurrection. That's the message of the Gospel. That's the great news of God. But the Bible never says that God is, is stuck or forced to continue to share that message with a person over and over and over and over again until they finally get it. The Bible says that we have an opportunity. Today is the day of the Spirit. When we hear God's Spirit tugging on our heart, that what we hear is true, we're to respond at that moment in time. Because today is the day of the Lord. And we don't know if it's appointed today that this would be our last day, this side of eternity. Even the Apostle Paul, when he went into the city of Corinth, said, you know what? I've come to you and I have told you the truth over and over again in any way, shape, and form that I could to try to help you understand that you are separated from God by sin, 
that God loves you and He sent His Son and Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Savior that you've been waiting for. You must turn from sin and turn to God. You must receive Him as your Savior and your Lord. And He got to a point of saying, you know what? You've heard it enough. Your blood is on your own hands. I'm going to the next town. And it wasn't a callousness that led Him to that. It was a simple, it was a simple truth that, you know what? God presents His truth. And you and I are responsible for what we do with what we hear. You know, they turned at that point and said, hey, the opportunity, there's opportunity ignored is an opportunity lost. Before we look at this passage, I want to make an observation about the importance of being open to God's truth and the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life. Last week's uh, message identified two types of folks who are in every audience, and I believe that that's true here again today, and I believe anybody would be listening to this by tape, I believe it's true also. And that's this that there are those who are seeking the truth, who are open, who are teachable, and will respond to the truth as it's presented from the Word of God. And I believe that, those are seek- that, that there are those who are seeking an excuse. Close-minded, hard-hearted, looking for a way to justify your condition or your position in life. And those are the only two people in every audience. Those who seek truth and those who seek an excuse. The high priest Caiaphas and the council of the Sanhedrin were confronted by God's truth through Stephen and yet, as was so often the case in the history of Israel, they chose to silence the messenger to blame the one delivering God's message rather than to accept God's truth and repent of their sin and to throw themselves upon God's mercy and turn to Him. Instead of wanting to respond to truth, they put their fingers in their ears basically and they rushed Him in rage and they grabbed Him and they dragged Him outside of the city and they wanted to shut Him up. To me, that would be as foolish as you going to a doctor and he gives you a bad report, one that you don't want to hear. And rather than hear the report, you grab your doctor by, your, by his throat and you drag him outside in the parking lot and you pummel him, hoping that along the way he'll change the report. Somehow your condition has improved immensely. Now, he may go there, but it ain't changing what's really going on in your life. See, the history of the world is just that. Throughout the history of God's providence and His timing, God has sent messengers into the world to, to give us the truth of God and His message and His love. First of all, His warning of sin and judgment and His love for us and the remedy that He sent. And we've had a, a responsibility of what to do with that message. Some have chosen to grab the messengers and to kill them. The history of the nation of Israel is one that did just that. To silence the messengers as if somehow the message will go away. But the message of God's truth doesn't change whether we like it or don't. It's truth and it's accepting truth that sets people free. So I was running out last Sunday to get to the stadium. I came upon a couple and I had to run out the side because there was a lot of people going out this way. And I, I was looking for that opening. You know, I was kind of doing an end around and uh, looking for, you know, the biggest people that I could follow to follow out. And, uh, you know, they were my lead blockers, you know. And uh, so as, as, as uh, my tackle pulled left, you know, I went off to the right and there was an opening there. And so I, I, I was running out the back. And as I got to the foyer, just at a strategic moment in time, this gal who was here that had invited someone who had come with her, and I don't know what their relationship was, but she turned to him, and I was just right behind him, and she said, so what did you think of that message? And he said, I don't like him. I don't like him, and I don't like what he said. He acts as though, you know what, there's no, there's no room for other opinions. And man, I was tortured at that point. Because I was late, but I was just dying to tap him on the shoulder and just want to engage in a conversation with them. Yeah, I did that. I kind of went, no, don't, let's go. <laughs> but, but I wanted to ask him, I mean, what was it that was so offensive? 
Because if it was truth from God's Word, I'm sorry I can't help you, and basically in a very loving way, I like to say, deal with it. <laughs> what are you going to do? Can't change it, right? Hey, deal with it. So the bottom line is this. Have you come today open to God's truth, seeking truth, or are you seeking an excuse to continue to do what it is that you want to do with your life? See, there's only one God, and we're not Him. So, what's God trying to teach us in this particular passage about reaching beyond our comfort zone? Well, let's take a look at it from the standpoint of the persecution of the church. The persecution of the church. And we see that in verses 1 through 3. And uh, as we read, and it was uh, Saul who was in hearty agreement with putting him to death on that day, great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. The persecution the church had faced up to this point had been directed at the apostles and their associates who were proclaiming that Jesus Christ had indeed risen from the dead. Peter and John had encountered opposition from the Jewish authorities. Stephen had died a martyr's death. And yet, up to this point, no persecution had been aimed at the members of the church, and that was about to change drastically. In other words, those in the pulpit were being persecuted, but not those in the pews. Well, it was time for the persecution now to come not only from the pulpit, but down into the pews in which you and I live. And that's what happened. You know, as I study the Bible and just to kind of share with you, um, you know, how I get a lot out of my time in studying the Bible, certain words jump out at me when I go through it. For example, in this passage, the, the name Saul jumps out. And the reason that it jumps out is because we're introduced to him for the first time in Scripture in verse 58 of chapter 7. We're introduced to this man who was a young man. The Bible says that when Stephen was stoned, the people who were stoning Stephen laid their coats at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. As we'll learn, he was identified as Saul of Tarsus. That was where he was from. That's where he lived. He's introduced to us as Saul of Tarsus on, in verse 1 of chapter 8. We're told that Saul was in what? Hearty agreement. He was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. The term hearty agreement, agreement indicates an act of approval, just not a passive, oh, you know what, eh, you know, they're killing him. Hey, it doesn't you know, mean that much to me one way or the other. I'm kind of indifferent. Or yeah, I'm a, in a, no, he was in hearty agreement. This guy was saying basically, hey, listen, you're not getting a real good drop with the rocks, with the coats and stuff that you have on. So I'll tell you what, so you don't have to worry about anybody stealing them. Why don't you let me hold them and bring them over here and I'll watch them for you. Because, man, you know what? If that's how I can contribute, I want to be a part of this. And when they stoned people, by the way, they would take them into a pit. And, that, you know, they didn't want to have to do too much work when you killed somebody. So they would take them and they would lay them in a pit. And then they would take the rocks and they would drop them on the person who was laying face up facing those who were stoning them. It wasn't like they were running around trying to hit them, you know, like dodgeball or whatever that is. You know, he played with the kid. You know, it was they were laying right there and they couldn't go anywhere. And so as they looked up, that's why Pete, as Stephen said, as he looked up, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He saw Him as he looked up and he was looking beyond their ugly faces and the snarls and the grins and the screaming and I'm sure the cursing and all that went along with it and they were dropping rocks on Him but he was looking up because his eyes were fixed on Jesus. Consider him who endured such hostility against men so that you don't grow weary and that you don't grow faint. Man, there's a beautiful example of that truth. But anyway, he was in hearty agreement. It's an active term of approval. 
He was one of the most promising young Pharisees in Jerusalem. He was on his way to the top of becoming one of the great leaders. And his zeal for God and the law was displayed most vividly in his persecution of the church. He really believed that persecuting followers of Jesus was one way of serving God. And he did so, the Bible says, with a clear conscience. He obeyed the light that he had. Listen carefully. He obeyed the light that he had. And when God gave him more light, he obeyed that. And he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Because he was a man that was seeking truth. He was seeking God. He loved God. He was misguided in his beliefs. He was a perfect example of a person who was sincere in what they believe, but sincerely wrong, and yet open to truth. You and I will encounter many people in our life who are sincere about what they believe, but they're sincerely wrong. As Roger said, walking around a group of stones and flicking something personally in and hope that somehow that finds favor with some kind of deity that you're looking for. There are people that are sincere in what they do. And it's our responsibility to help them understand that though they're sincere, they're wrong and misguided in their belief. Churches are filled with people who are sincerely seeking God. Those who seek God will find Him and surely not be disappointed. Those who are seeking an excuse will continue to affiliate with whatever that belief system is in order that they can continue to be what they want to be. And there's only one God, and we're not Him. There's only one plan of salvation, and we can't come up with another. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Enter by the narrow gate, for the way to destruction is broad, and many travel that direction. There are many people who are misguided, They are sincere, but they're wrong. And Saul of Tarsus is a wonderful example of that. And yet God loved him and sought him out. And yet while he was a sinner, while he was persecuting God's people, while he was in hearty agreement with the the stoning of Stephen, God still sought him out with the love of Christ. And as he revealed that light to him, he came to personal faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sin. It's a great story and we'll see a lot more of that in chapter 9 as we get there. But several more words jump out in this passage. We're told that there was a great persecution. There's no question about it. It was a great persecution. It was detonated, so to speak, by Stephen's murder. It was led by a Hellenistic Jew, Saul of Tarsus, which we said, who thought he was serving God. He was wrong in that, sin- in that sincerity. You know, what's, ir- what's ironic, and we'll see more of this, is that, you know, Saul of Tarsus, or as we know him as the Apostle Paul, would suffer much greater than Stephen did. Stephen died the first time that he was persecuted and Saul, and Saul, I mean Paul, suffered greatly in his service to Christ. There were many times that he experienced death and many times that God had spared him. And he understood what it meant that the day he was going to be gone from this world, he'd be present with God, absent from the body, present with the Lord. He came to that clear understanding by revelation of the Holy Spirit, but also because he lived through it and he longed for that day when he'd be poured out, as we're told, as a drink offering, that he would be accepted into the presence of God. Man, he suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, is one of the greatest historical arguments for the reality and the historicity of the Christian faith. No one has been able to explain how this guy who hated Christians and hated Jesus Christ could do an 180 degree about faith, about face, and be the stellar, so to speak, uh, spokesperson for the cause of Christ through human history. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus 
is a great historical argument for the fact that this man came into faith with Jesus Christ, whom he had persecuted, and he was even willing to die for what he now believed. He saw a resurrected Savior and it changed his life for eternity. And no one's been able to discount that. So, historical argument. Also, if we look at this, Jesus had said in John 16 too, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. It was fulfilled. The difficult thing for me to understand is that the persecution of Stephen, and as we'll see, the church, came from what I would call friendly fire. And friendly fire, Stephen's death came about from fellow Jews who claimed to love the same God, to claim to love the same God, to claim to love the same forefathers and Moses and Joseph and all the history that he went through. These are the same people who all claimed to believe the same thing, and yet they were the ones who were instrumental in putting him to death. Friendly fire is a difficult thing to understand, and it's at this point that we have to trust that God has a purpose even for friendly fire. And that is to cause us to reach beyond our comfort zone to fulfill His purposes. Notice what happened here. Because of the persecution, the Bible says that they were all scattered. The word scattered is a word that we'll see that has to do with sowing seed. You know, when we, when we read that all of them were scattered, it's not all because the church in Jerusalem was still existing, the apostles were still there, but as far as all were concerned, many believed they were the Hellenistic Jews who had come to faith in Christ and they were scattered throughout the world. That they were scattered beyond that. As we look at this, the Jerusalem church continued to exist, we know that, but they fled from this time onward. There are many historically believed that those who were left in Jerusalem were the Jews who had come to faith in Christ, and those who were scattered were Hellenistic Jews or from other foreign countries who then were sent back to where they came from in order to fulfill God's purposes, which was what? We're going to find out here in a second. What a contrast when you look at this. Look at verse 2. Some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation, which is mourning over his death, But Saul, here's the contrast. On one hand, they're mourning the death of this godly man of wonderful godly character, full of faith and full of wisdom and full of knowledge of Scripture and what a great leader that he was. And on the other hand, there were those who what? Saul began ravaging. Look at the word that's used. He began ravaging the house of God. It says, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he pulled them in prison. Man, can you imagine that? The word that's used here, ravaging, has to do with the... It's only used here in one other place in the New Testament. To destroy, to ruin, to damage. Literally, the the word means this. That Saul's mission was to literally tear apart the church of Jesus Christ. To just rip it apart. It's an act that he would tell us would haunt him the rest of his life. In fact, it haunted him so much that he felt himself unworthy to be called an apostle of Jesus Christ, though he was. Maybe you can relate, because I sure can, as I was studying and reading this and realizing how he felt about what he had done to Christians before he had come to faith in Christ. God never allowed him to forget that. Though he did not hold him accountable for that or hold that against him, he never was able to forget it from the standpoint of remembering how insensitive and callous he was, how sincere yet wrong he was, and how easy it is if we're not open and teachable to be wrong again in our life or our perception of things. When I studied that, God immediately reminded me of when I was in college and that couple that stood up who professed faith in Christ and I yelled from the front of the room to shut up and sit down. And the whole room applauded because of that. I have never been able to forget that 20-some years later, nor do I think I ever will. Maybe you have memories like that of people that God brought into your life 
to try to share the love of Christ with you. And in your hatred to the messenger, you did something or said something that even to this day that you regret. I just tell you today to forget what lies behind and press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To not allow that to hold you back, but if anything, to praise God that God was still persistent in His great love for you, that He sent another person or another person or again to get your attention. And we just pray that uh, we at this point in time will not be sincerely wrong in our motivations to do something to serve God only to find out that we misread something because we haven't taken the time to check into the facts and find out what really is going on. See, the persecution of the church as we see is something that, uh, that, that will, as we look at it, it resulted in the scattering of the church but God used the wrath of men for His gospel purposes. Let me just share that with you again. God used the wrath of men for His gospel purposes. Persecution always leads to this potential. And the potential is this. For the proclamation of the message. The potential is always for the proclamation of God's message. And I say potential because not all are faithful to take advantage of such God-given opportunities. The proclamation, as we'll see here, of the message is found in verses 4 through 7. Notice what happened. Therefore, which is therefore connects the previous thought to the one that's about being introduced. Therefore, those who had been scattered went and preached the word. This is what happened. They were there. Now they weren't there. They were all over the place. And therefore, because now they were all over the place, what did they do? They took advantage of this opportunity to preach the Word. We can learn much about how these persecutions or these persecuted believers responded to the opposition. It says that they had been doing so before they were scattered. Notice this. And then they continued to do it after they were scattered. They had been sharing the message of Christ where they were. So it was only natural that wherever they ended up, they did the same thing. Isn't that great? The word scattered is translated, as we'll look at it, went about. Now, just coming back from a conference in upstate New York with a majority of people there who are Canadians, I learned that went about is actually went to boot. <laughs> it's went to boot. So they went to boot and they began to share the gospel so that the people could process the information. And uh, so, anyway, this is just for our Canadian friends who may get a copy of the tape. So they feel at home right now. And uh, they went about sharing Jesus with everyone in contact with them. The, the words went about have to do with a missionary term of going about wherever you were going or passing through the areas that they passed through. It's a word frequently used in acts of missionary endeavors. What did they do as they went about or passed through? They were continued to do what? They continued to preach the Word of God. Preaching is from evangeliso, which refers to proclaiming the gospel. Here's what happened. All of them, all the scattered believers were involved in evangelism. Although some were gifted evangelists, which Philip is identified as one, what we're going to learn is that all Christians are called to proclaim Christ. They did so with boldness. They did so without reservation. And they did so with great authority. All Christians are called to go about telling people about Jesus. About sin and the sin that separates us from God, which we're all guilty of. About the remedy for sin, 
which is God's great love and Jesus Christ that He sent Him to die on a cross in our place for those who would believe, about His resurrection, that He was who He claimed to be and demonstrated it by great power as He was risen from the dead. And the reality of the fact is that we are to go about preaching, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Application. You and I are where we are strategically at this moment in time placed by God regardless of the circumstances that led to the change in order to tell people about Jesus. Perhaps you've experienced a slowdown at your business or a downsizing or there was an unfair layoff or termination that led to the change. Maybe you moved to a new city or a new school or a new team and it wasn't your first choice. In fact, it wouldn't have been your choice at all. Perhaps it was an ugly incident in a former church. Whatever it was, the point is this. Don't become embittered toward people. Don't be filled with vengeance or trying to seek to get even. Don't be angry at men whose motives and actions may have been unjust. And never forget that God is in absolute control. See, what man can intend for evil, God certainly can turn to good. And yet it doesn't cause us to not be accountable for our motives because God is judge and He will judge sin. So those with wicked hearts or wicked intentions, you know, God will judge them for that if that's the case. But we're never to be bitter or angry about it. Because there's nothing that happens in a believer's life that's not appointed by God and ordained by God and have to be stamped and approved by God before it happens. All you've got to do is read the book of Job. God said, hey, this is the way it's going to work. If you want to attack Job, this is going to, it's going to be on my terms, not yours. And here's what I'll allow to happen. But God was in complete control because He had a work to do in Job's heart. So you and I should never forget that God's in absolute control of everything, everything and anything. And while we can become embittered toward people and angry and spiteful and hateful, the Bible says be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. And so I take confidence in that. I take comfort in that. Regardless of what's going on, and oftentimes what we see isn't really what's happening. And we've got to ask the deeper questions, the more spiritually insightful questions. God, what is it that you want to accomplish through this? And in great humility at times and submissiveness to the will of God, we enter into a situation that we're not sure how it's all going to turn out, but we trust God every step of the way. That's a wonderful truth. We are where we are so that we can tell others about Jesus and reach beyond our comfort zone. Now, let's face it. Who but a handful of people likes change? When I get in a comfort zone, don't mess with it. You know what I'm saying? And usually it's in the chair with a remote in my hand. No, keep praying for me, but that's where it is right now. You know, in order that the gospel is proclaimed, God often uses the evil of men to accomplish His purpose. And you know, if you got your Bible in front of you, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, a passage that immediately came to mind as I was struggling with this and looking at this. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter summarizes it this way. He says, you know, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness 
and into his marvelous light. What's the purpose of God choosing us to be his people? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us from darkness into light. For you once were not a people, but now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And what he says is, just go into the world and tell people how merciful God is and that he would choose to forgive a sinner just like you. Because the world that I run into, you know, there are a lot of people who act like they don't need forgiveness, but most of the people that I run into can't believe that God could ever forgive them. That's the greater problem. I can't believe if God really knows the thing I've done in my life that he could ever forgive me for these things. But the Bible says God demonstrated his great love for us and yet while we were still in our sin, he sent Christ to die for us. If you're here today and think that God's mercy and forgiveness can't extend to you because of the things that you've done, then you don't understand how great the love of God is for you. And I just want to encourage you and challenge you to receive that gift of mercy and forgiveness because God loves you. And he sent Christ to die for you. We're introduced at this time to Philip, whom the Bible will introduce to us as an evangelist. He's the first missionary named in Scripture. He becomes a key figure for the rest of our chapter. We'll look more about that. But Stephen, his faithfulness, and the bottom line is that he was one also who was chosen as Stephen was to administer the daily operation of the local church. He was a faithful man. And the principle was this. He was faithful in what he was doing, so God opened the door for him to be faithful in what he was leading him to do. You follow that? Listen carefully. God cannot use you to do great things for Him until you are willing to do the least of things today. God cannot use you tomorrow to do great things for Him until you are faithful in the little things today. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to be a servant to all. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. I talk to so many folks who want God to do great things through them, but they don't want to do what they consider the trivial, minor, little things today. God blesses His Word. But listen carefully to what I want to apply. When I first came to faith in Christ, I had a burden and a desire, and what I believe was at the time a gift that God gave me to teach truth, the Word of God. I was disciplined in study. I exercised that gift. I would study sometimes for a week and no one would show up for the Bible study we were going to have. Other times one person was there and they were so sorry they were the only person because they got the whole truckload dumped on them. (laughs) You know, I'm learning to go to be a little more discreet, but it was like I was so excited. You know, I was like, wow, look at all this truth that I learned. I can't wait to share it with you, you know. And I forget sometimes that other people aren't as excited about learning the same truth. But, you know, I'm learning as I go. But the point of the matter was this. As God continued to open doors, it was because, hey, one person or five people or ten people, I've never been hung up on how many people were coming and how many people didn't come. I've never spoke to an empty chair that I can recall ever in my life. And I never will because it probably won't listen. Um, You know, because the one's filled. (laughs) There's enough trouble there. You know what I mean? But the point of the matter is, is that as you're faithful to do what God wants you to do in the present moment, then He'll also continue to, as you serve Him with open hands, God, you put it in, you can take it out. 
And if you want to put more in, it's a lot easier if the hands are wide open. And if you want to take it all out, that's your choice too. Because as Job said, naked I came into the world, naked I'm going out, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And so the reality of serving Christ is this, be faithful where you are. Because each day has enough trouble of its own and don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow takes care of itself. As Jim Elliott said, make sure when you die that that's all that you have left to do is die. That you don't live a life of regrets, of things that I was about to get to do or about to get to do and just didn't get to do it. You know what I mean? Be faithful today. And God has honored His Word and has nothing to do with anything other than God has honored His Word. And when we had 10 people or 15 people or 20 people or whatever, how many, 650 or however many people are here today, that is a testimony to the faithfulness of God. And this isn't about me and it never has been. We've got to be careful to examine the facts before we rush to judgment. See, Philip, this first great missionary, was faithful where he was. And God said, because you were faithful in little, I will now make you faithful in much. And historically, from a biblical standpoint, we have a memorial to a guy who, whose career from the world standpoint was cut short but you know what? Redeemed every moment in time wisely and was honored by God as he's been memorialized in Scripture. Philip, the first missionary, was faithful to the task God used him and he used him for a greater ministry. He began his evangelistic outreach. It says that the Bible says that Philip went down in verse 5 to the city of Samaria. For those of you who get all hung up on geography, here's what happened. Jerusalem was at a higher elevation than Samaria, even though Samaria was to the north and not to the south. So when you're reading the Bible, people go, the Bible's filled with contradictions. Well, what's this one? Well, for example, I know geographically that Samaria is to the north of Jerusalem, and it says that he went down. And if you go down, you go down south. You don't go up north. I mean, you don't go down north. You go up north if you're here, whatever. Look. Jerusalem was here, Samaria was here, it was an elevation, he went down to Samaria even though he was traveling north. That's what he did. And he began, but the point is this, that he proclaimed Christ when he got there. You know how we can get all hung up on little things like that and we forget the main point is this, when he got there he knew what to do when he arrived. And that was what? Tell people about Jesus. That's what he did. He proclaimed. The word means to proclaim publicly. He was a herald. He didn't try to do so in secret or in darkness. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They had a history, a long-standing history. They hated each other. Jesus broke all protocol when he announced to a Samaritan woman that he was the Messiah. The Samaritan woman ran back to her Samaritan friends and family and said, I met the one who was the chosen one, the Messiah. He introduced himself to me. You've got to come and check it out. And everybody else was like, well, wait a minute. Why would Jesus introduce himself as Messiah to a Samaritan first instead of to the Jews? Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. What I'm trying to get across is this. Philip wasn't a politically correct guy. And he didn't worry about it. Because he had a mission, which was what? To proclaim Christ to all who would listen that God brought into his path. I don't know who you and your background detest as a person or a people group, but let me just tell you something. God loves all people. And he wants all people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. He wants all people to be saved from the agony of eternal damnation in hell. Don't ever let your background or your hang-ups keep you from sharing the love of Christ with whoever it is that God brings to your path. Whether it's family, whether it's friends. Some people are racist and they don't want to see a certain racial group in heaven. But let me just tell you something, you're ignorant of Scripture. And on top of that, may I say, you're stupid. Because if you know truth and you still are disobedient, that's really stupid. 
heaven will be filled with people of all races and colors and all backgrounds and all language groups, diverse but united in one thing, and that is this. They all came to faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Philip went to Samaritans to tell them that God loved them and sent Jesus Christ into the world to die for their sins if they would only believe that, that they would be called children of God to those who believe in His name. And God authenticated the message in verse 7, For in the case, many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And the end result, the productivity of all of this persecution that led to the proclamation of the gospel, led to the productivity of preaching the world, word man, much people were rejoicing. People were rejoicing. They didn't care how many people came to Christ. They didn't care who the one was preaching the message. They didn't care how many were in the church of Jerusalem and now in the Samaritan group and then the other churches that would arise later. They weren't all counting numbers and comparing what was going on around them. They were all rejoicing because men and women were coming to faith in Christ and they were being added to the kingdom of God. There was no petty competition. There was none of that. It was beautiful. It was the way it's supposed to be. Men and women coming to faith in Christ and they were rejoicing. And how it all happened? Very simply. Hey, you know how it started? With persecution. God getting us beyond our comfort zone. Scattering us out so that we could take with us the message that we have of the love of God that's found in Christ. The powerful miracles preaching of Philip resulted as it had in Jerusalem and salvation and many who had come to faith in Christ. They weren't just saved from their disease. They weren't just saved from some, some spiritual deliverance from demons. They were saved, complete deliverance from sin through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible also warns while many were coming to faith in Christ, there were also those in the audience who were rejecting the message. And we're going to find next time as we go through chapter 8, the question that will be addressed is this. How do I know if my faith is a genuine saving faith? You know, the Bible says there will be many who stand before the Lord one day mistakenly believing that somehow that they were right before God. And Jesus is going to say to them, Be gone from me, for I never knew you. How scary is that? That's why we need to know what the Word of God teaches. And that's what we're going to look at next week. I'm going to close with this. The next time you face persecution or opposition for your faith and God moves you beyond your comfort zone, don't forget to tell the new people in your life about Jesus. Persecution leads to the proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of Christ, the preaching of God's Word, always results in what? Productivity. And productivity from the standpoint that's this. God's plan is to reach the world And God, through His Word and through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, draws people to Himself, and it's the Lord who adds to that number, not any man. Father, thank You for the opportunity to be here today. We just pray for those who are here who have never trusted in Christ as their Savior, that they would do so, recognizing sin, responding by confessing that sin, agreeing with God that they're guilty, turning from sin and turning to God and receiving Christ as their Savior even now. The Bible says that today is the day of the Spirit and as the Holy Spirit tugs on your heart, may you not reject Him. God, I pray for those who are here to seek an excuse for their lifestyle or their behavior, trying to squeeze you into their world instead of them becoming submissive to you. I pray that their hearts would be broken today, that they would recognize there's only one God and none of of us are Him or you. God, we just thank You that You love us and yet You sent Your Son for us even while we were sinners. Christ died for each and every one of us. That there's nothing we've ever done in our life that's too big to receive Your mercy or forgiveness. God, and I just pray for those of us who have come to faith in Christ at some point in our life, some historic moment, that today that we would not 
only trust you, continue as our Savior, but we will trust you as our sovereign God who is in control of all things and the persecution in our life that we could become like John and Peter who considered themselves blessed to be counted among those who are persecuted for, the name, for your name's sake. So we pray that as persecution arises, as we're scattered because of that, that we'll keep our eyes on you, that we'll stay focused on our mission, which is to tell others about Christ. And as we proclaim and preach the word, that your spirit, as he convicts hearts, will draw people to yourself and that you will add them to the numbers who are called your children. And there'll be much rejoicing and much praise. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.